how necessary is a system that's set up to sustain compassion for caregivers to an economy that is stable and secure? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. It used to be that one man would have a steady job in a factory that was secure for the foreseeable future. A job he could support his family on and have nice stuff for living and figure that he'd be okay in retirement. Well, those mid-20th century days are long gone. And with it, that generation which were kids in that idyllic picture, like me, are now aging and in need of more and more health care. Supply of us aging hippies is growing, as is the demand for health services. The pharmaceuticals know this and are focused laser-like on cool new drugs to cure what ails us. But along with that profit-driven dynamic, there's a growing, often not fully met, demand for people, qualified caregivers. And with demand for them high and supply nowhere near uh, what it needs to be, something called burnout, not surprisingly, happens. And that's not good for anybody or for our already overburdened healthcare system. Now, this show is normally fairly strictly political in nature and topic. But if you think about it for just a minute, the idea of care, of compassion, of an economic system that has healthcare as a central value is held by many parts of one party and not at all by the other. That, what you just heard, may be the extent of our political discussion of the issue today. Our guest is David Schenk, whose new book is Into the Field of Suffering, Finding the Other Side of Burnout, put out by the Oxford University Press. He wrote it with the help of spiritual leader Scott Neely. The point we'll discuss is that we in the 21st century can't afford what is called caregiver burnout. We'll look at the unintended meaning of that phrase and how this growing need can be met uh, by society and yet, and yes, politically. David Schenk, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Glad to be here, Bert. David Looking forward to talking. Well, David Schenk is the former director of the Ethics Program at the Medical University of South Carolina and was on the faculty of the Center for Biomedical Ethics and Society. Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He's co-author of two previous books on ethics and healing in healthcare. One is Healers, Extraordinary Clinicians at Work and What Patients Teach, Everyday Ethics of Healthcare. And I am involved in the healthcare system, not intentionally. <laughs> Shank taught oh. philosophy and religion for 20 years and has published widely in bioethics, philosophy, and religious study. He was founding executive director of a free medical clinic a healthcare advocate for the homeless and 25-year hospice volunteer. Ooh, well, that's I mean, being a, a hospice volunteer for all that time, uh, one can guess at your intent on writing this book. What issues are not being addressed that you argue really need to? What was your intent in writing this book? The so there were two big things. One. <clears throat> I burned out big time. Yeah, and we can, uh, exactly, right. <laughs> and uh, we can come back to that story. It's not good to assault the clients in your agency, you know. So uh, that's one story. But the other was just watching the heroic work that the people around me 
did uh, in the hospital, on the street, in the clinic, and thinking they don't know how wonderful they are and what can be offered to help them discover how wonderful they are and uh, to keep doing the work. I mean, you speak of of politics, and it's mm-hmm. impossible to avoid politics on any, almost any subject, but especially here where the working conditions for nurses, for doctors, for techs, for frontline workers are set by um, large institutions, medical institutions, most of which are for-profit institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, big pharma figures in there. The insurance companies are back it up figure in there. And so in the middle of that, how do people who really want to offer themselves, uh, how do they survive? How, how do they move forward? Mm. How do they survive? How do they move forward? And all that experience, I, I have to ask, what, what, there's nothing like personal stories to communicate, uh, and, and politicians know this. Uh, t- tell us a bit about what effects of burnout that you personally saw in those, all those years of, of, of being involved in it. And what did they do? What did they mean? And uh, what, what concerned you about what you saw? Well, let's start with a very personal story. Sure. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I uh, left the academic life to, and a good job, a very good job, mm-hmm. to help start a free medical clinic. There were some local churches in town. They were looking for somebody who might have some administrative experience and some you know, public speaking experience. I had done a postdoctoral fellowship on uh, medical ethics, and I thought that access to health care was like the biggest ethics issue. So I thought a free medical clinic to provide insurance for people without insurance, mm. whether they were working or not working, just a critical uh, presence in, in our society. And again, speaking of political issue. And so that involved recruiting doctors, recruiting nurses, recruiting pharmacists, recruiting dentists, raising money. I went to every possible place I could talk, you know, any lunch club, I had lots of those little, you know, uh, white bread sandwiches cut in small things with uh, cucumbers in them. You know, I mean, anywhere people would let me talk. That's dedication. Uh, Go ahead. Yes. Well, and it was one of the worst parts. Um, I helped supervise the gutting and the reconstruction of the building. Um, I screened every single patient that went through. I was the bouncer when a bouncer was needed. I was the backup chaplain when the chaplain didn't come. Okay, you can see what's coming. Uh (laughs) I threw myself into this with absolute commitment and absolute pleasure. And after about two years, I went to the board and I said, gosh, I'm just, you know, I'm just worn out. And they said, well, take a break for a little bit. And they hired an person who almost destroyed the clinic. And so they said, please come back. And so I did this in a slightly more intelligent fashion for two more years. And then, <clears throat> interrupt me when I've rattled on too long. Oh, not to worry. I decided to go run a day center for the homeless uh, where I would be one staff member for 60 guys uh, off the street and had a half-time assistant uh, who would often lock herself in the office and uh, drink a little bit. 
And um, this was incredibly intense. I would wake up at five o'clock in the morning and have horrible stomach problems because I was afraid of mm. what would happen when I opened the door at seven o'clock. It was a shelter where people were supposed to come if they were drunk or stoned, where they could be safe all day long. The only rule was no weapons. But the challenge here is for the unarmed man to walk up with someone who has a big knife on his belt and say, excuse me, sir, but those are not allowed here in our building. And uh, so anyhow, that moved along. So by then I had worked five, five and a half years in these kinds of settings. And uh, I knew I was getting tired, but I didn't think I was, you know. Anyhow, I had walked up the street and I heard this uh, yelling in my shelter. And so I ran back down the street and there was a, Young man, um, Caucasian, uh, patient, many depressive patient who had been off his medications. I've been trying to get his medications. And there was an African-American uh, man, um, had a crack addiction. Mm. The young white man was moving through town, didn't know anybody. The African-American man was one of the regulars from the shelter. I knew him pretty well. And we had worked for six months to get him glasses, real glasses. Mm. And somehow, whether on purpose or not, this kid had sat on the glasses and busted them all to pieces. And so the conversation, the gist of it was, you're going to fix my glasses. No, I'm not. I will leave out all the expletives and all the, you know, whatever. So I go down and I get between them. Any law enforcement person will tell you never get between the people fighting and I was holding the young man <clears throat> against the wall and I was keeping eye contact with the man that I knew uh, because I knew he carried knives in both pockets and I didn't want him cutting me while he tried to get to the young man finally someone stepped in front of that guy and I tried to talk the young man down he had gotten on a stool he was climbing over the top of me and then I blacked out Four or five seconds later, I'm at the very other end of the building, which was a basketball length court, a church building. And this kid has fallen over. Well, he's 22, 23. This kid has fallen over backwards and is probably going to hit his head on the concrete floor. And somehow I wake up. I have my hands on the lapel of his coat. I'm about 45. He weighs 220 pounds. I, I probably weigh 240. And I jerk him up by the lapels of his coat, portion of his coat, up off the ground, carry him eight feet out the door and slam him into the program van and held him eight inches off the ground because I wanted to keep him from pushing me. Now, this is not what you want from your staff, but I snapped. And this was an accumulation of four and a half years of mm. pushing too far. Boy, patience. I just, you know, sometimes <laughs> even in restaurants, I, I, you know, there are weight people. And I think, boy, they deal with some uh, difficult people, shall we say, and they smile. Mm -hmm. How long can one do that? How long, you know, how long can you? And you're dealing not with restaurants, but with people who are pff, seriously in need of services. And, oh, man, 
the, the burnout. I, I just how, you know, it's something that we don't talk about the, the burnout in the in the caregiving sector. Uh, but uh, one can see how. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, how can you not burn out? I mean, let's just face it. There, and, and yeah. let, let's talk about you know some of the common perceptions about if there are any perceptions of caregiver burnout. What what common ideas tend to be used judgmentally, and what are we? I mean, what, what's the danger of of the judgment that's involved with that? What's what's wrong with mm-hmm. the term burnout even, and that can be used judgmentally? Well, one of the first things is that burnout focuses on an individual, when in fact uh-huh. Uh-huh. we have institutions and social decisions that put all the pressure on some poor guy like me down in the shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is homelessness? Where does it come from? Right. Why do we not have affordable housing? Right. During the time that I worked on the street, uh, state of North Carolina had, in the beginning, a reasonably good community mental health. I mean, at least I could get somebody to a therapist. If I banged on the door enough, I could get medicines for them. By the time I left two years later, it had been dismantled. You know, the only way you could got, get a therapist was make a phone call to some supposed agency 150 miles away. Mm. Two-thirds of the people on the street have mental illness problems, Right. you know, give or take. And so you have gutted the very support services that might have helped people uh, on the street, which then means you put um, a person out there like me or there were two guys at mental health who worked the street uh, with me. Um, so that's part of it. The terms themselves, uh, burnout and moral distress, are again focused on individuals. Right. And so... If we say Bert's burned out, what that means is really Bert's done something wrong. Right. He's, he's he's gotten too close to his clients. He's gotten enmeshed with his clients. This is said about nurses a lot. Too mo- emotionally involved. You know, you need to back off. You you need to toughen up a little bit. Or you know, Bert, once you've been doing this for four or five years, this won't bother you. So just just uh, um. just hang in there. And then the uh, recovery from that is um, okay well you know we'll schedule and these are all good things by the way we'll schedule you some yoga classes we'll get you some Mm. uh, mindfulness meditation and uh you know take a couple of days off and then come on back and so you're not striking very deep Uh, you're not giving any institutional or career analysis uh and you're giving things that are good but not particularly potent uh, medicines. Uh, with this judgmental layer on the top of it, it's very difficult. I'm sure. And as with so many things, you know, climate change, this, that issue, that issue, we look to, we commonly look to the individual. Oh, I'll just, you know, save some money and buy a expensive uh, electric car i'll do this but you know it it's systemic as you say it's institutional and what you're talking about here the healthcare system uh it's to blame the individual once again mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. going to fix it it's not going to fix it as with so many things 
in America, you know, and we have this this notion of rugged individualism, and it's all up to the individual, uh, and that any kind of you know l- looking at the system is socialism. Oh, how scary! Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, we've 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 had social security since uh, FDR. We have Medicare, which has been there since uh, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, but we don't have caregiver. I mean, we don't have Medicare for all. So there's this, let's take a look at this system, caregivers. Is it true that, that under the current system without Medicare for all, and there are a lot of you know street people, et cetera, and there I just said something that sounds judgmental, and it probably is, and I feel badly about that, but it's just, it's worked away into, its, uh, into our language. Caregivers tend to be under the watchful eyes of large for-profit healthcare institutions. What's the talk about the effect of that, if you would please? Terrible pay, uh, terrible hours, mm. and therefore terrible patient care. Mm. And mm. You, you know, if you are in these institutions uh, visiting patients, um, a lot of hospice work is done in these settings. And you know, as uh, is the case everywhere, you find people that are just jewels. I mean, they are. They're saints that are hidden away in these very difficult places. And then you find people who are retired. You know, they're working 12-hour shifts. They got mm. kids at home. Their husband may be laid off. They can't leave the job. Um, and the patients are older and older. You know, are, are, in my, I'm 71. My mother just died. She's 94. Mm. I'm going to visit the teacher next week. She's 94. I mean, there's a whole different uh, demographic with fewer and fewer caregivers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and a whole range of qualities of these uh, nursing homes. You know, you walk in the door of some and the immediate thing is urine. Uh, Just a deep smell of urine. Not just like yesterday's or today's, but Mm -hmm. you can tell it's... You know, it's soaked in. Um, And so part of what I try to do is recognize that anybody in a situation like that needs to be looking for what they can do to change the institution. Mm. But at the same time, that is a long-term, I mean, you know this uh, uh, way better than I do and, and way better than most people, that kind of institutional change takes a long time and right? perseverance. Yeah. 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 Speaking of burnout, different kind. Um, sure and really. so, right. So part of what I'm interested in is, okay, if you're stuck in a situation like that, what can you do? What are your resources? And I think some of those are internal and they have to do with learning and being taught. You're not on your own right? You're learning, you're being taught. And one of the things you're being taught is how about doing a little organizing? How about talking to the people who are seeing some of the things you do? Because if you just go in and have a tantrum about how bad work conditions are uh, all by yourself, um, what are you going to be doing tomorrow? <laughs> you're going to be looking for a job. Exactly. Oh, boy, that is difficult because you want to be do something about it, but then again, you gotta have a paycheck. Boy, it's it's sure it's a big well, squeeze. 
tease. It really is. And for those who just may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about burnout, you know, and 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 the rising uh, demand for caregivers and how difficult it is that we don't really look at that, but it's an essential part of a stable society. And boy, it's it's uh, this little foundation it's starting to crack just a little bit, more than just a little bit. Our guest today is David Schenk, mm. who's written a new book, Into the Field of Suffering, Finding the Other Side of Burnout. Such an interesting title. How did you come up with that, The Field of Suffering, Into the Field of Suffering? It came out of a series of experiences, but the best example I can give uh, is so, well, and back up a step. Any time in our lives that we've gone to visit somebody, and we might have been five years old, might have been 10, might have been 15, but we've gone to visit somebody who's sick, and often they're in a room by themselves, mm. and as we go in, uh, Maybe we're afraid we're going to catch something. Maybe it smells bad. Maybe it's our best friend who doesn't look so good and it's a little bit scary. As we get older, maybe we're going to need to touch this patient or, you know, gosh, are they going to throw up? What am I going to do? Or if they have diarrhea, really, what am I going to do? I'm going to call their mother, you know. Um so from very early on, we have the sense that there's a kind of space, a charged space, a field around the sick person. And when we go in to visit them or come close to them, we're walking into a territory that's unfamiliar. That on a very simple level uh -huh. is what I mean by the field of suffering. Hmm. But now let's amp it up a little bit. Um there's, uh, I get a call as ethics consultant and it says we have a patient who needs to have a brain tumor, uh, debulking surgery to take down the size of a benign brain tumor. It's growing into his throat. He can't talk. He can't eat. And he wants to leave the hospital. We think he needs the operation. Will you come see him? Uh, yes, of course. That's, that's my job. So I go see him <clears throat> and I open the door and there's this, uh, emaciated man sitting cross-legged in the hospital bed, uh, shirt off, wiry, clearly strong, um, face caved in a little bit from the tumor, uh, long time homeless, you know, leathery skin from homeless. And, uh, you know, two or three things hanging around his neck, a couple of medallions and, and a cross. And I walk over to shake hands with him. I mean, we're in Tennessee you now, right? So, and it's, way pre-COVID. So you shake hands. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, he has this unbelievable grip. And he's wanting to demonstrate to me that, you know, he may be the guy in the bed, but if anybody's going to, you know, bust anybody around the room, it's going to be him, not me. Uh, and so there's this immediate sort of, you know, mono we money, mono we mono nonsense going on, but that's okay. Um, and radiating from him, if you will, is his homelessness. Uh, he uh, was in the foster system. He got beat up and abused. He left when he was 14. He lived on the street ever since. He was about 42. Uh, no family. Um, so speaking of suffering that was compressed in his body, 
but it filled the room. So literally, you open the door and you stepped in, and you had not just his life, you had life on the street, you had all these layers. And in addition to that, he had a brain tumor that was killing him. And so all of that, by by making the choice to step into that room, you say, I'm taking this. I'm willing to be there and not run away. And that's true for anybody. I mean, I went as an ethics consultant, but, you know, you go to visit him as, uh, you know, you think you're just distributing magazines going down the hall, right? And then you step into that room and, and you're kind of like, wow. It's like a magnetic field, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this guy had a very strong Mm. Uh, magnetic field. Mm. Boy, that that's some field, and you know, as you describe it, boy, it takes a special person, and you know, it's not about individuals, but and and there are uh, there's a great need for this as my generation gets gets older. I'm a little older than you, only a year, I'll confess. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, it, it, you know. The people who who give care, I don't. I can't imagine how, uh, you know, you can have this empathy for the suffering of others, uh, and not be kind of overshadowed. I mean, it would affect one's sleep, I would think. You know, I, and I know uh, from the work that my wife does about uh, uh, the veterinarians who have to put pets down sometimes. Yeah. It's really hard. It's very difficult. Yeah. And how do you, I don't know if you can offer advice for caregivers as to how, uh, you know, the gifts that they have the, and that they can give to other people don't overshadow uh, the caregivers. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing uh, that we talk about in the book that I think can be really helpful is uh, I think there's an arc of uh, the caregiver's vocation. I think there are phases that uh, hmm. almost everyone goes through. And if you can recognize that, that helps you realize that it's not personal. It's mm-hmm. not a personal mm-hmm. failure. Mm-hmm. So here's what I mean. Um, uh, a person feels uh, a call. They feel somewhere mm-hmm. early on. Mm-hmm. They're drawn to people who are suffering. They're drawn to help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you interview people, I talk with nurses a lot, and I say, when is the first time you knew you wanted to be a nurse? And, you know, it's things like uh, it, my classmates in the third grade used to bring me the baby birds that were wounded. I mean, these are real cases. I'm sure. not making yeah. this junk up. Uh, or, um, you know, I was in Girl Scouts uh, or in Boy Scouts and the first aid stuff made the most sense to me, and I became the first aid officer for my troop or whatever. Uh, for many people, it's a parent, mother or father, or, or you know, grandparent or, or uncle who's in, in uh, a medical field. But somewhere uh, along the way for most people early on, uh, in rural Tennessee, the women would often say, well, I had two choices. Uh, three, I, I had to work one. I could either teach or be a nurse. And some people would say, I knew I hated kids, so I wanted to nurse. And some people would say, well, I tried and they gave me junior high school, so I changed to nursing. But 
in every case, when I would stand up in front of the room and put my hand on my heart and say, this is where it starts. Everyone in the room nodded. Everybody knew that it was a heart sense of responding. And then there's a period of training. You know, there's yeah, an sure. initiation period and, you know, you walk into the room full of cadavers for the first time or you get blood all over yourself for the oh. first time. You know, these these things that initiate you from what everybody else is doing that day. And then gradually you, you come into what uh, I think of as mastery. You know, mm. I'm pretty good at this stuff. You know, I've, mm -hmm. I've helped in these cases. So-and-so has gotten better. I was really important in saving the life of so-and-so and so-and-so. And, and that period can go on for years. Uh, and it's good, but at the same time, it builds up a kind of ego sense of, <laughs> nah, I'm pretty hot. And then inevitably, and this is true for all of us in everything that we do, but inevitably there are things that happen that are difficult for us, that deflate our ego. Maybe we have a patient die in a situation that's not so good. Uh, maybe we assault the client and carry him outside the building. Mm -hmm. Make, various things happen to us, and we recognize that we aren't doing very well. And this is what moral distress comes in and depletion comes in. And these are the first signs of burnout. It's that I'm not adequate to everything I'm being asked to do. And so <sighs> what I want to argue is that's inevitable. That doesn't mean that David has failed. It just means that I've moved into the phase of my career where now I have to step up a level. Does that make sense? How are we doing? Oh, it makes tremendous sense. And, you know, getting, making mistakes, if you, if you don't learn from mistakes, boy, I mean, that it's such an opportunity learning from mistakes. And gosh, to not take it, to, to somehow be able to, I just, I, I mean, you talk about the blood. I could never do that. I'm glad there are people that can and can have that That's right. mastery. It is amazing. You're right. And, and that they can do that. And, you know, if you can learn from that, put your ego aside, say this is a learning opportunity. I, I wish that were the case with, you know, virtually everything. People who, you know, right. say, yeah. I've yeah. done this for 100 years and don't tell me. You know, come on. Right. You can always do but it. Go ahead. But there's a particular edge here. So here's an example. And this is a kind of initiation level, not a mastery level. I'm talking about, but let's just go back. Um, <clears throat> a person is talking about uh, doing the hospice care for her friend. And one day uh, a hospice worker comes and he's a substitute for the person I usually have. And he's clearly very young. He's very new to his job. And he came in to do the job and it involved uh, changing and dressing, and the smell was unbelievably bad, which can happen with uh, various things, but bed sores in particular. Um, and this young man had to leave. He just could not stay in the room. Now, this is catastrophic for the patient. You know, part of what the patient is hoping for is that someone will be able to come in, touch them in their most shameful and vulnerable place, and stay there and stay there with them and say, you're not alone. You are not outside the human race and mm -hmm. we're going to do this together. But this young man failed. But what 
I tried to say in this conversation was, you need to know that this young man wanted to succeed. He thought he was ready to succeed. And when he left, he knew he had failed. And everybody that comes in wants to succeed. They want to make that person better. And so you have to remember that he went out devastated as well. Now, one thing that may have happened is it made him stronger. He spent time around horrible smells. He learned to bandage better. And then he went back and he was far better. And the other thing is, he just looks at it and says, I, I don't, you know, I need to go train in, in computers. This is mm-hmm. just the wrong work. Mm-hmm. And that's a good solution too. Mm-hmm. It, because he's going to be miserable if he keeps trying to do this. But these are, you know, you get tests like this and can you incorporate them into who you are and move forward? But the difficulty is, you know, this young man uh, tries harder, but then he keeps getting put in difficult situations and he doesn't have enough training. And gradually he goes through what I would call depletion, Mm. where his resources are getting thinner and thinner and thinner. And if he doesn't have some help and a mentor and some structural support there, then he is going to go into what and I try not to use this word except in unusual and specific circumstances, but then he will burn out. And by that, I mean simply incapable of going to work and doing the job. Or if he goes to work and does the job, you know, he's like one of those surgeons that throws scalpels in the uh, operating room or one of those guys at the homeless shelter that picks the guy up and carries him out of the building, you know? Um, so it's, uh, I want, then, well, I was going to go ask, I, I wonder how the institutions, the largely profit-making institutions that, that you know, keep the, uh, the process going, the caregiver process going, do they recognize the need for mentors and structural support? Because I would think that's exceedingly important. Yes, uh, they do, although... Oh, good. Um, to be honest, let's, let's, there's always economics, right? Yeah. Um, the places, the, the most developed programs tend to be for physicians and it's older physicians mentoring younger physicians in order to get them back uh, into the game because this is a place where you make money. Uh, and so you have surgeons doing unusual things like throwing scalpels, like uh, mm. sexual harassment in the operating room. Uh, you were thought that had been too busy for that, but <laughs> you know, you're never too busy to unfortunately uh. Uh, harass. Um, lots of drinking sometimes coming mm. into the office or even indeed into the OR uh, drinking all kinds of recreational well, it's not really recreational, is it, if you've stolen opioids out of the mm. pharmacy? But at any rate, they have direct access to all kinds of drugs, man. And so you have uh, those kinds of difficulties that show up that become visible, and people are put in programs, kind of like 28-day programs for uh, alcoholics and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh and it's often very senior and respected people who, who run those programs. What is now being recognized is that um, 
we have a nursing shortage. Yeah, we have the recognition that if people are burned out all the way uh, up and down inside the institution, that, mm. you know, Dr. Uh, Jones and Dr. Smith may be great, but if nurse uh, Bert and nurse David aren't any mm. good, the hospital can't deliver care. So you need to take care of everybody up and down. But what does it mean take care? Let's have some yoga class. Boy, it sounds like I'm uh, talking yoga. This is not true. Right. Mindfulness is one of my major practices. But let's teach those that's relatively cheap. Doctors don't run them. Let's um, focus it on uh, the individual. Right. The better institutions will have, uh, what do they call it, IEP. Anyhow, um, employee support, and sometimes they'll provide therapy. It'll be four sessions. Um, I spend a lot of time in therapy and four sessions doesn't necessarily get you very far. Yeah. It holds your, it holds your hand and gets you back on the field. So, and often those people are good. Boy, the couple of times I've used them, they're fantastic. And then at the end of four sessions, you know, you're yeah, on your you can own. only do so much. Yeah. Right. But this- so there's some recognition institutionally, but, uh, except for the physicians, in my experience, it rests uh, on the individual. You know, a manager might say, okay, Shank, get with it, or, you know, you're looking a little burnt out. And they might take me out for a drink, which might or might not help. Hmm. But um, it's my responsibility. Meanwhile, these labels, failure labels, he's morally distressed, that means he cares too much. He's morally distressed. That means he thinks he's a doctor and he knows better than Dr. So-and-so. Um, he's burnt out. You know, he obviously is uh, overworking and, uh, you know, just trying to do too much. So it's the individual, again, blaming the individual. Yeah. yeah it yes. Like it. Yes, of course. But for the individual, there are so many things that can be done that make it no longer you all by yourself. And so... If you have this understanding that a vocation involves call, initiation, mastery, challenge and depletion, the possibility of renewal and replenishment, Mm. and then moving on to a higher and new stage of mastery that is less about your ego, less about Mm -hmm. how great I am, Mm -hmm. more about the people in front of you, then you have a whole new different way to do your work. And it will end in, it will lead to another period of depletion, which will be a time of learning and you can keep going. But if you think burnout is a personal failure and a catastrophe, um, then you, you know, you're inclined to feel like you've hit the wall. And what I'm saying is don't hit the wall. There are ways to avoid it. That's, that's one of the big messages ah, of the book. Ah, interesting. So uh, yeah, different perspective. Uh, there's something in some, I'm not sure if it's uh, jujitsu or whatever, like if somebody's coming at you with a sword, just turn, get a different perspective on it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's got to have a different perspective. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is David Schenk. We're talking about an issue that uh, that really is growing with, with my generation. Uh, I was born at the height of the baby boom. Uh, David Schenk wrote a, a new book called uh, Uh, Into the Field of Suffering, Into the Field of Suffering, Finding the Other Side of Burnout. 
and how, gosh, to see it as a personal failure and, you know, people judge themselves uh, and, and, you know, judge others that, you know, there's got, there's a different way to do it. Don't hit the wall. <laughs> Don't hit the wall. Speaking of walls, just briefly here, there, it, it seems like in terms of the history of the 21st century already, we have, there was uh, the four times and the after times relative to COVID. How did the COVID pandemic help reframe common ideas about the toll of caregiving? It was, it did a remarkable service in mm. one way uh-huh. uh, to people uh, in the healthcare field and particularly the frontline uh, folks, the nurses, uh, the intake people, the EMTs, uh, the people that were had first hands on these patients who uh, in the beginning were plague patients. I mean, we didn't, uh, we felt like they were killing, right. COVID was killing everybody. We didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. They were trying things in the ICUs that were working for some people and not for others. Uh, there were triage policies, you know, do we just not try to treat anybody over 80 or over 70? This is bad news for you and me, right? Um, so, but there were, along with that, there was, at least for a period, really good news coverage i mean there was visibility that's true what the struggles were there were human interest stories there were pictures of people with their heads down on their desk totally exhausted there were people Mm -hmm. outside the hospitals uh crying or wiping you know sweat off themselves covered with blood uh you know there were those celebration things of banging the pots so i think that one thing COVID did was to bring visibility to what distress and burnout uh, were for not just the doctors and not the kind of people you would see on, you know, your soap opera as a general hospital or Dr. Kildare, boy, I'm dating myself on a house. We are, yes. Um, (laughs) But everybody, everybody uh, in those pictures of mass graves and the people making the burials, but the other thing was it exposed uh, enormous weaknesses in the mm. healthcare system. Uh, and so fundamental things like supplies of gowns, gloves, and masks so that your healthcare workers could at the very minimum have some protection uh, from, again, we for a good while weren't quite sure what right. the uh, contagion mechanisms were. And yeah. Um, ventilators, you know, do, oh, do yeah. we have enough ventilators? Uh, and after a while, the therapies got better and ventilators weren't as much in demand. But, you know, you remember in those early days, March, April, May, okay. uh, you know, and Governor Cuomo, you know, hijacking uh, uh, ventilators from uh, President Trump or whatever went back and forth there. But uh, and then there were beds, beds that would allow you to prone patients, turn them over, uh, rotate them to try to help their breathing, um, medications of various kinds. And what that does is it shows that there's not a lot of redundancy in the ah. supply system. Well, why is that? Ah, if you're operating on a particular effort to have a profit margin, uh, it's not good to have your, uh, you know, a lot of money tied up in uh, your warehouses with 
the equipment that would be redundant. And so what do we do? Uh, we streamline it down to the level that works most of the time. And that's economical, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. But when the unusual time comes around and we open the warehouse thinking, boy, I need some more gowns, they aren't there. So I think it demonstrated some weaknesses, which then shows why people have to be heroic because they're making up for weaknesses of the system. But at the same time, it brought a spotlight. Yes. Workers. And sometimes, you, you know, the patients were feeling bad. It weren't so good to the workers. But, boy, I remember when I went to get my first shot and I was thanking people so much. And oh, they yeah. said, this is the best period I've ever had as a healthcare worker. Huh. Everybody who comes in this building is so glad to see me. They are so happy that we're doing these shots. So, you know, it was uh, awareness on the patient's part of what the risk and the giving uh, was involved for, for the caregivers. And that was a plus. Yeah, interesting. It was real wake up. And I, you're reminding me of how yeah, everybody was polite. I mean, the, 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 you know, when I went to get shot, uh, you know, people were appreciative it was it was it's a big thing and we're still trying to figure out how it affected us and uh there right. were certainly lessons to learn and and we're still learning them and uh just the fact that it was so big and affected everybody uh it's it, it's like hey wake up people this is you know we have to be aware of health issues and yeah i wonder if there are other models uh, besides caregivers working for big corporations, other other examples uh, that that can be replicated elsewhere and that, that may be better. I don't know a lot about this. Um, you know, I know anecdotally, you know, intentional community in uh, Oakland, California, where uh, the the community itself is the is the caregiving pool, and it's wow. mm. you know it's a wide range. It's an extended family. You know, it's a wide range of ages, and somebody gets wow. uh, harmed in some way, and they and they take care of them. But I don't know, you know, I don't know many community. I know some monastic communities oh, yeah. like that. It's it's tough but to really replicate. Yeah. Oh yeah, right. But really, I, my impression, and this is so important to talk about, is that the family. Um, for all the um, battering that the family has taken, um, remains uh, the um, you know predominant caregiving unit. And I mean, it sounds strange to even have to say that out loud, but uh, it is. Now, it's not the same. You know, I did interviews in rural communities in North Carolina and. You know, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, and everybody were there, uh, you know, in the same little draw. And when grandma got sick, you know, the kids did this part, and the adults did this part, and these guys did this part. And if so-and-so needed a special pressure bed that was very expensive, everybody chipped uh -huh. in. You know, they bought it, and they stuck it in so-and-so's house because that was the one house where it would fit. That is mostly gone, yeah. but the the um, 
time for children and partners to step up is is there. And this is a group of caregivers that we also don't care for very much. Mm. You know, it's kind of like, oh, well, you're his wife, kind of like what you were saying at the beginning of the show. Uh, you know, the world was divvied up and part of it was, well, you're the wife, you'll take care of him. Right. Or you're you're the wife and the daughters, you'll take care of him. Mm. Um, a lot of problems with that, right? Uh, and so now it is um, in many families much, much more uh, complex and you have divorce and you have step parents and you have remarriages and uh, and so it gets it gets complicated but still in all <clears throat> it's the people in the house or you know down the street or across town and that's one thing but i found can you... people do care about one another if you know if when push comes to shove i mean not everybody but a lot of people it's sort of a natural reaction like you know, if you yeah. see, if you see a car accident, everybody stop. You know, you rush out and you try to help the person. You don't know the, right? And it's sort of in human nature. And I th I'm thinking one of the things in human nature we like to feel connected. And one of the, one of the factors describing life in the mid 20th century, 21st century, is isolation. A lot of us mm -hmm. feel isolated these days. It's really destructive. I mean, not just I yeah. mean personally and. I, I, I wonder if the challenges and opportunities of caregiving offer a way to address this and possibly, you know, encourage and foster a sense of community in dealing with this isolation. What do you think? I think, well, one of the things that happened, let's just call it the 1950s model, is you weren't isolated. You know, there were two or three generations maybe. Right. But also you knew, you knew why you were doing it. There was an ideology and it was clear, you know. I'm the father, I take care of this. I'm right. the mother, I take care of this. Mm. Part of what we don't have today, we have the isolation socially and so on, but we also don't have a clear reason for it, especially if there have been a couple of divorces and who's the child and this, that, and the other. And so the caregivers are isolated mm. and they don't share various things. And so one of the things that I encourage is set expectations early on, talk it through. You know, mm. I can handle blood and vomit and diarrhea, so I'll mm. do that part. Uh, but we know that, uh, you ah, know, interesting. Um, uh, Bert is not real happy about that. But I, I can do something know, else. Uh, you can fight with the insurance company. <laughs> uh, boy, there's a thankless job <laughs> oh, for you, buddy. Um, but, but there are many different tasks. And if you talk through, now you'll have to adjust that and so on. But this is one way to prevent. Uh, burnout is to try to pick the thing that you're good at. But what it also shows you is, huh. okay, David's going to be cleaning up all this uh, goo and maybe he needs a little relief or maybe we need yeah. to be sure that he gets gloves and uh, some gowns because just because it's family goo doesn't mean it isn't uh, goo. messy and contagious. Yeah, And so I think that that's part of it. And then one of the things that hospice can provide is a mm. sense of how to deal with uh, guidance and how to deal with death so that mm. a family can mm. come together with some people who know how to do this and who can mentor them and who have seen a lot of challenges. And this can help uh, break the isolation uh, as well. Mm. And let me tell you, these hospice nurses, doctors, and social workers 
are, uh, I think without exception, and I have worked in hospice in several states over 25, 30 years. They're just tremendous people, you know. We saints need to... is a word that is occasionally overused. But well, the problem people... with the word saints is it's so outstanding and, you know, outside of the normal human uh, expectation. But they're, they're you know, the, the good people who do. Well, let me... Go ahead. Let me do better with that. Okay. Um, what I think, one of the beautiful things that I think can happen in caregiving and talking about drawing people closer together is you have a person who has vulnerability that is on display, if you will. There's the patient with vulnerability that needs something. And then there's the human response that you were speaking of a few minutes ago. One of the things that I think happens repeatedly is that those of us who are not saints, and I count that as a large number of us, during certain moments when we are in front of a suffering person, Almost by magic, the very best parts of us come forward. We are generous. We are patient. We are courageous. We do things we would never be able to do. And then we leave the sick room, and we're just the the same old (laughs) impatient Mm -hmm. jerk that we used to be. But when we are in that setting, it's like we step into the skin of what? saintliness is about but then we step out of the city and and, you know we're just like uh, regular uh, joe and jill but there are some very few people i think who are able to muster that all the time but you don't have to be that to take good care of somebody all you have to do is be present listen to them and don't abandon them And and once that happens yeah other things will flow, and the gifts that that are that come to the person who's doing the caregiving, you may not expect that in the beginning. There's a lot, you know, you gain the the person who's doing the care. It feels good. Let's face it. Yes, it feels good, and it, it it's rewarding. There's not a lot that is rewarding these days. Uh, we could talk for another couple of hours. There's st- so much to talk about. The book is. Well, our guest has been David Schenk, and it's called Into the Field of Suffering, Finding the Other Side of Burnout. A lot of, just real quickly, who's the target audience for this, do you think? There are two primary audiences. One is people in healthcare, in particular on the front lines mm-hmm. of healthcare. The book is written to be accessible to the general reader. Mm-hmm. It's not for academics, it's not for doctors. And the people I thought about the most were nurses technicians, EMTs, policemen and firemen, other first responders, people in agencies on the street. That's the first kind of thought. But the second thought is these people we've just been talking about, caregivers in the home, facing unusual situations, feeling tired and frustrated in new ways, feeling like they aren't doing a very good job. Mm. Um, there's a whole cycle of this, and there are things uh, in the book that can help those people. I mean, the under theme in the whole book is thank you for what you're doing. People appreciate you, and uh, thank you for what you're doing. The book is designed to encourage. And that does matter a great deal. It really does. 
the human touch, the human connection. Thank you so much for being with us today. There's so much that can be gained. And, and my generation, you know, we're a big, a uh, lot of demand. Yeah, we're a big problem. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Bert. Enjoy this. Thank you. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.